open the scriptures to 2 Timothy, chapter 2. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. I was thinking about this young man, Timothy, and what an amazing thing it is that he has two letters in the, in the New Testament addressed to him, and there's no one like that. Little did he know when he started walking around with Paul that he would end up part of the New Testament with two letters written to him. So we're going to talk a little bit, bit about this uh, relationship of Paul and Timothy as we examine this, uh, well, actually the first uh, nine verses of chapter 2. So why don't we begin reading there, verse 1 of chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Well, Paul wrote this as he was laying in a Roman jail, prison, knowing that he was about to be martyred. So what he was doing here was sending his final letter out, and he sent it to Timothy, his young co-worker. He knew that much of the weight of the responsibility for the, the new uh, converts and new churches, the New Testament church was going to fall on Timothy's shoulders. And Paul wanted to prepare him for this. Now, if you think about the situation, it would have been easy, at least for me, to be discouraged in that situation that Paul was in. Here he was in prison. Uh, persecution had begun to spread through uh, the young church. It was increasing. Heresy was cre creeping in. Uh, you see that in a number of the letters that Paul wrote and other, other uh, apostles were having to deal with heresy coming into the church. And people were falling away from the faith. And in fact, many people that Paul had had some confidence in had actually deserted him. So, like I say, for me, I would have had a tendency to be kind of under a cloud in such a situation. But Paul writes a very positive letter to his beloved son in the faith. That's what he called Timothy, my beloved son. And uh, what he does is he's honest with him. He doesn't paint uh, a rosy picture of the Christian life. 
Rather, he knows that the best way to prepare him for the difficult and hard times that lay ahead was to tell him the truth about what, was, what he was going into, what was going to be uh, his lot as he talk, takes over the mantle, we might say, from, from Paul. Now, as you read through the letter, you get a different feel than what we often have today, what we often hear, or sometimes hear at least, concerning the Christian life. Uh, some people would have us believe that it's easy and pleasant and painless. But this is not honest, and it will disappoint people. As the saying goes, the honesty is the best policy, and you have to be honest and realistic. And Paul was being that way with Timothy here, telling him the truth. I couldn't help but think, uh, because we get into some of the, uh, one of the illustrations that Paul uses here as a soldier, I couldn't help but think of the illustration uh, from Winston Churchill as he faced the British people or spoke to the British people uh, during World War II. As he, he, this was his first message as he took over as prime minister. And the first thing, he, I don't know if it's the first thing, but in this message that he gives, he says, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Because he knew they were in for a hard time dealing with the mighty Nazi military machine. And so he said, it's not going to be easy. Blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Now, Paul had much more to offer Timothy in the service of Christ, but he did want to be honest with him. Let's just look at a, a couple examples of this. Chapter 1, verse 8. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So he says, come on along. I'm in prison. It's not going to go easy for you either, Timothy. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. And then if you turn over to chapter 3, verse 12... He puts it more in a general sense. He says, And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So he's saying this doesn't just apply to you, Timothy. He just realize this is going to be this way for the churches also. There's going to be persecution. And then uh, chapter 4, verse 5, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry. So endure hardship. So he wasn't, uh, you know, mincing any words. He wasn't trying to paint a rosy picture here. Paul was placing before him very clearly the peril and toil that would be associated with the work that he was called to. But as you read through the letter, you also see that he wrote much to encourage his sometimes timid helper. I'm talking about Timothy. There's an indication that Timothy had kind of a tendency to pull back uh, and be somewhat timid. So Paul puts a lot in this letter to encourage him. The section that we're looking at here this morning, Paul begins by encouraging Timothy to see himself as an important link 
in the ongoing proclamation of the gospel. You see that in verse 2. He says, The things which I have heard, that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you see the link there. He says, All right, Timothy, what you've heard from me, you take those things and give them to faithful men so that they can talk to other people. It's like he's just he's he's got a vision. Paul has a vision for the gospel going out, and Timothy's right there in the midst of that. You've heard from me. Give it to faithful men. They'll give it to others, and it'll go on from there. So, just uh, the 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 place that Paul was putting Timothy, it would give Timothy a sense of his importance. You see, to take what he'd heard from Paul and give it to others, so that the gospel could go forth. He then uses three illustrations to bring home the reality of the work ahead. The three illustrations are a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And I think each example was to teach Timothy some aspect of the Christian life. So let's just look at these briefly here. First of all, the soldier. What should we learn from this? Why does Paul use a soldier as a illustration for a follower of the Prince of Peace. Seems a little uh, strange. Well, we know it's not strange at all because we are called as Christians and Timothy was being called to spiritual warfare and suffering and hardship are part of what we should expect in warfare. You're a soldier. You're going to expect some hardship and some suffering. Um, Again, let me quote Churchill, he said, Death and sorrow will be the companions of our journey. Hardship our garment. Constancy and valor our only shield. Now he said that as he was reporting to the House of Commons in October 8, 1940, concerning the, situa- the war situation. So they were just beginning into this war. There were many years ahead. And he said, death and sorrow will be the companions of our journey. Hardship our garment. Uh, Again, a realistic view of things. It was not going to be easy. And that's what Paul was, I think, stressing by using this illustration. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But far from being a soldier the way we think of it in... Uh, a worldly army. We are soldiers not for an earthly king or for an earthly kingdom, but rather we are soldiers for Christ. And we don't rely on human valor or strength like Churchill was talking to the people there. Rather, we're called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, and we do that by relying upon Him. As he says in verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Strong in the grace. That's where we get our strength from. Not some inward valor or determination. Paul puts it this way in another place. He says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So he's saying, I labored, but wait a minute. I I wanted you to make sure you understand. It was the grace of God in me 
that brought that forth. So, we've been enlisted. We're told in verse, verse 4, it says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, I was thinking about Paul's choice of words there. <clears throat> we, he says we, we've been enlisted by Christ and our desire should be to please him. We haven't been drafted. We've been enlisted. Now, how were we enlisted? I mean, when you think of Jesus going out, he calls his disciples and he says, come and follow me. They had a decision to make whether to do that or not. If you're drafted, you don't have any decision. You just go. But Paul uses the word enlisted here. He's enlisted us. But see, that there is kind of a, a, a strange way of putting it because normally we think of enlisting ourselves, but he says he's enlisted us. So it's not quite a, the draft, but it's not just me saying, well, I guess I'll just follow Christ. He was active in that. I think the way to understand it the best is that he's loved us into his service. He's enlisted us that way from what he's done for us. Now, there's not many armies like that. Enlisted into service out of love. Nevertheless, that's what I think uh, probably why he chose uh, this way of putting it. He enlisted us. So, how do we please him who has enlisted us? We please him by believing that his grace is sufficient for what he's called us to. This is what, again, that's my son, be strong in the grace that, Christ, uh, that is in Christ Jesus. We, we please him by trusting him, trusting him that his grace will be sufficient. Now, he's called us, it tells us here, to a different life than what is normal for the, the uh, civilian, or you'd put it this way as the non-Christian. We must be careful about entanglements, he says. You see that again? No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. We have to be careful about the entanglements that are there in just the common way of living. He's called us to something different, something higher. So we have to be on guard against the things that would keep us from our duty of serving Christ. Certain things that might be all right in everyday life may not be permissible when you're a soldier on active duty. And this is what Paul was emphasizing to Timothy here. You know, Paul still made tents on certain occasions in certain situations, but he was always careful not to get overly engrossed in anything that would keep him from serving Christ. And we need to have that kind of attitude also as one, ones who Christ has enlisted. We have to be careful about being taken up into the affairs of everyday life. The specifics of what that means, being entangled uh, in the affairs of everyday life, that, that can mean different things to different people. But I think the overall reality has to be that our commander determines what we do. Once, once you're in the army, in active service, the commander is the one 
that determines what you do. I debated whether to share this because all these things go back so far and nobody knows these things, but here's an old Irving Berlin song that was written uh, during World War II that kind of brings out some of the attitude. <clears throat> this is the army, Mr. Jones. No private rooms or telephones. You had breakfast in bed before, but you won't have it there anymore. <laughs> the point is that when you're on active duty, you're not on vacation, you know. No private rooms or telephones. It's, it's not going to be easy. That's the idea. Especially since somebody else does the scheduling of your day and it won't necessarily be the way you would have done it on your own. That's part of being in the Army. But I do like, again, the way, the positive way that Paul puts this at the end of the verse. He says that it is the desire of the soldier to please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And I've already brought that out because we've been enlisted by the love of God. But even in the, in the world, in the natural realm, great armies often rely and rally behind great leaders and do things far above the, the uh, call of duty because of what their commander has instilled and inspired in them. You see that even in the, in the natural realm where people, soldiers, will do things above and beyond the call of duty just because of wanting to please the commander. Well, how much more should that be the case for Christians, for soldiers of Christ Jesus? So, that was his first illustration, the illustration of a soldier. The next illustration is that of an athlete. <clears throat> Why is an athlete a good picture to represent the Christian life? Well, of course, when we think of athletics, we think of uh, discipline, hard work again, striving to win the prize. Uh, specifically, the thing that Paul brings out here in this verse is that the athlete must compete according to rules. You see it there in verse 5. And also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. We've had many examples over the last few years of athletes that have not competed according to the rules, using all the steroids and stuff. But if you're going to win the prize, not be disqualified, you have to compete according to the rules. And even after all the training and discipline, the athlete still cannot win unless he plays by the rules. So Paul is saying to Timothy, you're going to have to do this by the rules. You're going to have to go by the book. And of course, that's if we ask, where's the rule book for the Christian? We know where that is, and Paul answers that. Uh, in chapter 3, where he says, speaking to Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now normally when we read those we think of, of how the the man of God uses these things to teach and reprove and correct and, and train other people. But it's, it, it's 
first of all, yourself. He says that the man of God, he's talking to Timothy, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we, uh, the first place we take the scriptures is to teach ourselves and to reprove us and to correct us and to train ourselves before we start using it anywhere else. So Paul says you've got to compete according to the rules and you've got the book. You've had it since you were a kid, he tells Timothy. The last example that Paul gives then is that of the farmer. And I think that uh, the point he wants Timothy to get is just very simple. Hard work pays off. Hard work will pay off. It may not seem like it for a while, but it will. You will reap what you sow. The farmer must labor long before he can reap the harvest. He must learn to labor and to wait and then to see what God brings forth. As he said in another place, as Paul said in another place, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So it's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. The Christian life, like the life of a farmer, involves the work of faith. You plant that seed, believing and hoping that eventually there will be a harvest. So it involves the work of faith. You plan and hope and patiently wait for the harvest. But you must plant if you're going to reap. Uh, If you don't plant, and if you don't plant much, you're not going to reap much. So what he's I think bringing home here the hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive the share of his crops. There will be a reward. In fact, he goes on and says, notice, actually he says, in each of these cases, there's a goal in view for each of these things he mentions. The soldier has the goal of pleasing his commander and, of course, victory. The athlete has the goal of winning the prize. And the farmer has the goal of harvesting a crop. And there will be a reward for the good soldier the honest athlete, and the hard-working farmer. This is what he's bringing forth. And he uses those things, but you know what? He doesn't really fill in the details. He just gives those illustrations. And then he says this. He says to Timothy, Ponder these examples, and God will give spiritual understanding as to their application in your life as you're seeking to minister to the churches. You see how he says it there? He says, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, I think that's kind of a a good principle to follow when we're dealing with other Christians. We don't have to fill in all the details. We can let God do that. God will give a person understanding. You just present the general truths, the general principles, and let God fill in the specifics. That's if you're dealing with a true child of God. God will give them understanding. So, again, I think what what, uh, Paul was doing here is helping build the confidence of Timothy because uh, he's saying, you know, I don't have to tell you everything. I've told you a lot of things, but in the things that I haven't told you, God will give you understanding because I, I have confidence in you. Um, So, I think that's
kind of a principle also just for us dealing with other people. We don't have to spell out everything, one, two, three, four. We just can give some of the basic truths and let God give them understanding of how that applies in their particular situation. Well, though there will be difficult times, Paul made sure to encourage and embolden Timothy for the work ahead. Now, he does that throughout the letter. I just want to point out a couple of things here. In chapter 1, he expresses confidence in him. Uh, You see it right uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. He said, I I mind you have a sincere, true, real faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure is in you also. So he reminds him of his, the fact that uh, you know he has this godly heritage that uh, he's been raised in. And uh, he also brings up then the fact that he has, God has given him certain spiritual gifts. You see that in verse 6. For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is... Uh, which you, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So, reminding him, you know, God's given you some real gifts, Timothy. And then, overall, you have just the general encouragement that comes from Paul's example as one who is going through the difficulties and yet persevering. You see that, uh, well, a good example of that is in verse 12 of chapter 1. For this reason I also suffer, Paul's writing here, I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit which dwells in us. He's speaking, you know, dwells in me and in you, Timothy. Guard through the Holy Spirit which dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What's that treasure? Well, it's the gospel. It's the truth of God's word. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, Timothy, this treasure. And again, he's encouraging Timothy, you see. There's hard times coming, but God has given you a treasure, a tremendous treasure. And through the Holy Spirit, guard that and then proclaim His truth in the midst of difficult situations. So, these were things to encourage him. But by far, the most important fact to bring to Timothy's remembrance comes in the next verse. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. All right behavior, all right thought, all right motivation in the Christian life must ultimately be centered on Christ. This is where we get our strength. This is what will keep us through the difficult times. He's the Alpha and Omega of the Christian life. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. And Paul urges Timothy to remember Jesus Christ. And then he, he said, he's particularly two things about Christ. First, Christ is risen from the dead. Do you see it? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. He's not so much saying, remember that Christ rose from the dead. 
but that he is right now risen from the dead. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, alive and ever present there with you to help you and strengthen you in difficult times. So he's not emphasizing so much the past event, but the present reality. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Uh, well, like the song we sang, this is one of the reasons I uh, picked that song to begin with. We serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. He's with us today. The risen Christ should be the central fact of the Christian's daily experience. The risen Christ should be the central fact of the Christian's daily experience. No matter how dark things may look, no matter how inadequate we may seem or feel, no matter how fearful we are, He's the living one right now. He's the one who said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. So the question that comes to me, and I'll pose it to you, is isn't that our big problem? We just don't remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead in our daily grind when things are going difficultly or or things aren't working out. And we get under a cloud. Isn't it really simply because we don't remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead and practice his presence, as one writer put it? Well... Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Timothy, it's going to get hard. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. But then he goes on to say that Christ is the descendant of David. Risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. Why does he say that? Well, I think there's different possibilities for why he brings that up. Perhaps he was reminding Timothy that Jesus Christ walked this earth like you and I. He was born of a woman. He had real earthly ancestors. Though he rose from the dead, he was a real man who knew by experience the struggles and trials and weaknesses and the feelings of infirmity of the body that we have. Especially, he knew what it means to experience hardship and difficulties and sufferings. That's a possibility, uh, why he brought that up. Uh, Actually, one of the first heresies that uh, the young church was afflicted with was a notion that Jesus was only apparently human. There wasn't any question in this heresy that he was the Son of God, but he was only apparently human, only seemingly human. This heresy was called docetism, and that comes from a Greek word that means to seem. He only seemed to be human. But if Christ wasn't genuinely human... How could he offer himself as a ransom for our sins representing humanity? How could he be our representative if he was only apparently human and therefore not really human at all? 
So we must insist the way Paul did and the other apostles that Jesus was really human, fully human, 100% human. Uh, that's why the, um, John makes a big deal of this in First uh, John 4. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, he's really 100% human. He's 100% God, but he's also 100% human. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now is already in the world. So he says, this is, the reason he puts the emphasis there is because this was an early heresy, the idea that uh, Christ was only seemingly human. Well, that may be one possibility for why he brings this thing of uh, the descendant of David up when he's speaking about Christ. Another possibility may be that he was emphasizing the fact that Christ is the spiritual heir to the throne of David. Not only is he the risen one, he's the reigning one, reigning over God's kingdom. David had been the greatest king of Israel, no other king like him before or after, but his reign was very short. But Paul is saying to Timothy, remember, Jesus Christ is the king of a kingdom that will not be shaken, can't be shaken, a kingdom of which David's kingdom was but a faint shadow. So that's a possibility. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. But I think the most likely interpretation is that Paul is emphasizing that his gospel, that's the way you put it, my gospel, uh, is in accordance with biblical prophecy. He makes this point clearly in Romans chapter 1. Let me just read this to you. This is the way he starts the whole book of Romans. And uh, I think this is what he's bringing out here by emphasizing uh, Christ being a descendant of David. He starts this way in Romans chapter 1. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. So he's bringing out those two things, the resurrection, but also that he was a descendant of David according to the Scriptures, you see. Paul is saying, uh, he's making the point clearly that uh, this gospel that he's presenting, his gospel, Paul calls it, is the biblical gospel fulfilling the prophetic word. And Paul viewed this as a sacred trust of his. God gave it to him, gave him this gospel through a revelation. And he saw clearly that Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He's the one that was written about in over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Just one example of uh, what we're talking about here. If you turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, I believe I can't read my notes too well here, but I think this is right. Yeah, 
Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. This uh, is spoken concerning David. Christ was the descendant of David. And uh, this is what we're told concerning David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Now you might think well, he's talking about Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it can't be about David. He's talking about something far beyond what, what Solomon... It can't be about Solomon because he's talking about something that will last forever. So he was... Paul was emphasizing here in our verse in Timothy that Christ was the fulfillment of that prophecy... And you see the, the New Testament writers often uh, viewing Christ that way, of fulfillment of the prophecies, especially this one right here. Uh, if you turn to Acts chapter... No, Luke chapter 1. Excuse me, Luke chapter 1. There's some verses in Acts also, but we won't look those up. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. This is God speaking... To Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There you see he's the descendant of David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There's the idea again, it's an everlasting kingdom, and his kingdom will have no end. So he's thinking back of David here as the descendant of, of Christ and uh, the one who Christ descended from and the prophecy related to the fact that he was going to raise up a king on the throne that would have a kingdom that would last forever. So Paul, the gospel that Paul calls my gospel, the gospel he had received by revelation was in fact the true gospel according to the scriptures. It, it was in accordance with what uh, God had said throughout the Old Testament and especially in accordance with the prophecies. And really to Paul, the way to understand all the Old Testament and all of biblical history is to see that it is centered in this one who was the descendant of David, the, the Christ. Christ stands at the center of history as well as at its beginning and its end. He's right there in the middle of history also. So, the gospel has to do with God working in history through his Son to save a people in accordance with the prophecies of the Bible. And I think this is what Paul is emphasizing. He says, my gospel is part of the flow of what God has been doing throughout all of history. And in fact, it's the culmination. It's the center of what God has been doing. It's what God's been working toward to bring this gospel forth uh, through the centuries. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. He goes on then, and we're just about done, in, in verse 9. He says... According to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, 
but the Word of God is not imprisoned. He's saying that the reason I'm in prison is the gospel. The reason I'm considered a common criminal is the gospel. The reason that I'm in the situation I am is because I'm part of the flow, and you are too, Timothy, the flow of biblical history. You may be considered a common criminal because of that. That's what Paul... The, the word he uses here uh, for where he says um, imprisonment as a criminal, that word is actually uh, the only other place that word is used in the New Testament is in relationship to the two men who Jesus were crucified with, the two criminals. Well, Paul says, I'm in that same category. That's the way people view me. Paul was being viewed as an evil person by many, worthy of imprisonment and death. But he was not discouraged, and he didn't want Timothy to be discouraged either. He was not discouraged by the shame or the suffering that he was experiencing. He knew that God would ultimately vindicate him. That's what he's saying there in verse 12 of chapter 1. I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard which, that which I've entrusted to him until that day, even though I'm suffering these things. He knew that God would ultimately vindicate him, but he also knew something else that really encouraged him and was to be an encouragement to Timothy. He knew that the authorities could bind him, but he also knew the gospel could not be bound. You see that at the end of the verse. The word of God is not imprisoned. I, they can stick me in prison, but they can't stop the word of God. It's going to go right through those bars. You can't stop it. Many great saints down through the centuries have been imprisoned. Peter and James and John and Polycarp and Justin Martyr and Athanasius and Wycliffe and Huss and Tyndale and Bunyan and thousands of others have been in prison, but they never could stop the Word of God. You can stick those guys in jail. You can't stop the Word of God. It can't be imprisoned or eradicated. It's been burned and banned and beat, cut with knives, ripped apart, stomped on, locked away in vaults, the most despised and abused collection of documents in the history of the world. That's what the Bible is. Yet it prevails. You cannot stop it. You can't imprison it. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Its abusers are going to pass away, but the word of God continues on. This is the way it's put a number of places in the scripture. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You cannot imprison it. You cannot stop it. No matter how sinful men are, no matter how what wiles and, and obstacles that Satan puts in the way, you can't imprison the word of God. So, these are things that Paul was bringing out to encourage Timothy as he was to take over much of the shepherding of the New Testament church. Especially, he says, 
remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David. And whatever happens to you, Timothy, know this, the Word of God is not bound. They can do a lot of things to you, but they, they cannot imprison the Word of God. It will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth, and Christ shall prevail. So, remember, Jesus Christ. Well, those are some things that Paul was wanting Timothy to get a hold of in this, in this section, and there's many more there in Second Timothy. But uh, those are some of the things that Paul wanted Timothy to consider as he took over for him after he would soon be martyred. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you for um, how he sought to encourage his fellow worker, Timothy. And we just pray that the things that he would that he brought up for Timothy, we would be mindful of, especially to remember Jesus Christ, risen right now, risen from the dead, descendant of David, one like us who came to fulfill the prophecies and that this gospel is part of the flow of what you're doing for all eternity. Help us to remember these things and also that the word of God is not bound that no matter what happens, God's word will prevail. Help us, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.